I'm going to read our text for us in its entirety. When I finish reading the text, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. One final time, our text for today is 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. The Bible says this, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the Word of the Lord. All right, please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Uh, Father, we come before you with confidence, not a vain, fleshly, carnal confidence, but a spiritual, righteous confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that indeed, through the preaching of your word today, that your people would arrive at a greater, more accurate, more truthful, more biblical, more faithful knowledge of who you are, what you've done, and what it is that you now require from us as a right response. That we would come through the preaching of your word to a right knowledge of who you are, what you've done, and what it is that you require from us as a right response. But Father, I pray that this knowledge, this right knowledge, would not serve as an end in itself, but that it would serve as the necessary means propelling your people into right love. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so we feast our minds on your word through the preaching of your gospel and your law this morning so that we might fill our minds with your truth in such a way that it might fuel our hearts with love for you and love for our fellow man. God, we pray these things ultimately that you might be glorified in all the earth, but we also pray these things for the good of those people that you're saving across the globe, in our cities, and perhaps if you would be so kind, even in this very room, especially among our children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Basically, in our text today, what we see is we see the Apostle John, underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addressing three different demographics. He says, I write to you children. And then he says, I write to you fathers. And then he lastly says, I write to you young men. So we have three different people groups, three different demographics that the Apostle John, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to. And what's significant about this is that these three groups uh, represent three different stages of the Christian life. That term that we find, the first group that John addresses is little children. Now, this is one of uh, John's favorite phrases to use in order to refer to his church, his disciples, the people that John had spiritually mentored and discipled and taught. Uh, He calls them little children. It's not meant to be a demeaning, derogatory term, but rather it's a term of endearment. He's saying, you're like little children to me. I love you. I have a holy affection toward you, my beloved little children. And so often throughout John's letter, the phrase little children is meant to be understood in that vein, that he is writing to everyone. So when John says little children, he's he's usually referring to his entire audience. Everyone who is reading this letter and everyone who's going to hear this letter read by other elders in the church, he's, he's referring to the whole people of God, the whole 
church, all the saints, young, old, men, women. He's referring to all of them as little children. Again, all he means by that is, you are those who I love, you are my disciples, I have been to you a spiritual father. However, our text today, uh, the context is a bit different. When John says little children in this context, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, he is referring to not the whole church, not all of his spiritual children, but he is rather referring to one stage in this journey of the Christian life. He's referring to, to spiritual children in the faith. He's referring to babes in Christ. He's referring to those who are drinking milk. He's referring to those who are spiritually immature, those who are new converts or perhaps those who are behaving and living as though they are new converts because they've been stunted in their spiritual maturity due to their sin and unbelief. But either way, little children, in the context as we see it today, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, he is not referring, the apostle is not referring to the whole church in an affectionate manner, but rather he is referring to those converts, those followers of Jesus who are less mature. They're either new converts or they are people who have been following Jesus for perhaps even decades, but have been stunted in their spiritual growth because of sin, because of idolatry, or a common one in America today would be because of bad doctrine. There are a lot of people who say, I've been following Jesus for 40 years. Okay, well, man, you haven't gotten very far. 40 years? I would expect a little bit more. Right? I mean, this is what the apostle writes to the Corinthian church. By now, you should be teachers. But again, I have to explain to you the basic elements of the Christian faith. You know what's a basic element, a basic principle of the Christian faith? The gospel. And yet we have churches all over our nation that can't even get the gospel right. We have Roman Catholicism. It's the plus religion, right? So instead of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, they believe that we're saved by grace plus sacraments. That grace is actually infused through the seven sacraments, we have two as Protestants, but the seven sacraments, and particularly for them, it would be the Eucharist and transubstantiation, that it's literally the flesh and blood of Christ. So for us, it's grace alone. For them, it's grace plus sacraments. For us, it's faith alone. For them, it's faith plus works. And if you don't have enough good works, well, then maybe you can borrow some works from the, the, the treasury of merit, which is all the extra good works done by, you know, the saints, those really, really righteous, really good people. And they, they had so many good works, in fact, that they didn't even personally need that many good works. They were kind of the overachiever, the person who ruins the curve in class for all the other students, the person who studies really hard. And so they did so good. They actually have all these extra good works that they didn't even need, and you can borrow some of those if you don't have enough good works of your own. So it's grace plus sacraments. It's faith plus works. That's your works and the leftover works of certain saints. And then it's instead of in Christ alone, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it's grace and sacraments. It's faith and works. And then it's Christ and saints. The Catholic Church has exalted Mary as, as not just the mother of Jesus, but as a co-redeemer. As a co-redeemer. That, that Mary is sinless in Roman Catholic theology. That she's sinless. It's, it's the well, immaculate conception, right? We get that wrong. Uh, we think of Jesus, right? The incarnation. That's not the doctrine of immaculate conception. 
Immaculate Conception is actually the doctrine of Mary's birth, not Jesus. It's, it's the idea that, that Mary, like her son, was conceived miraculously without a sin nature. And that she has never sinned or fallen short of God's law in any way and that she is actually exalted as a co-redeemer with Christ. And the reason why Roman Catholicism has done this is because, you know, Jesus as the Son of God, He's just so holy, it's a bit intimidating, isn't it? Right? It seems as though He's maybe a little bit less approachable than we would like. So then let's, let's go ahead and get, instead of Christ, there is one God, the Scripture says, and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Well, what Catholicism does, it says, well, there's a few mediators, actually, right? There's God, there's man, there's Jesus, and he's still a bit of a step. So let's get a step in between. Here, here's God, here's man, here's Jesus, and here's Mary. And sometimes, you know, Mary feels a little bit too holy, and so we'll get some other saints, you know, in, in between us and Mary. So we jump to one saint, then we jump to Mary, then we jump to Christ, and then eventually we get to God. And another kind of thinking, you know, or, or mentality in, in Rome when it comes to Mary is the idea that Mary somehow has authority over Christ. And they get this from the parable of the changing of the water to wine in Canaan at the wedding. That, that Jesus, you know, he has this brief discourse with his mother and, and then Mary walks away. Jesus says, it's not my time. And Mary walks away and turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And so Roman Catholicism reads this and says, see, Mary doesn't even, she doesn't listen to Jesus. Jesus says it's not his time. Mary says to the servants, it's his time. He's going to do it. You just listen to him. And, and so they completely mis-exegete this text to think that, that Mary somehow has authority over her son, her son. So if you're wanting something, if you're praying for something, and Jesus says no, you can go to Mary. And she might make Jesus do it. Right? It's like the kid in a divorced home. Right? Mom is really being strict lately, so I'm going to go stay with dad. It's bad doctrine. Right? So it's grace plus sacraments. It's faith plus works. It's, it's Christ plus Mary and plus the other saints. And, and instead of by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, it's scripture plus tradition. That Rome has said that both scripture and tradition are two equal streams. Equal in what sense? Authority. That tr tradition has an equal authority to the Word of God. That's heresy. Now, we love Christian tradition. We don't need to read our Bibles in, in, a, in a vacuum. There's actually a heresy, believe it or not, many people are not familiar with this, but it's called Biblicism, which sounds really good, right? I remember when I was younger, you know, people would be like, oh, you're a Calvinist. And I'd say, I'm not a Calvinist, I'm a Biblicist. You know, like I just believe the Bible, you know, and if you believe the Bible, then you're a Calvinist. And I still believe that. I think that's absolutely true. I think John Calvin got the Bible right. But that said, aside from that, you know, Biblicism is actually a heresy. And what it means is this, that, that you read the Bible in such isolation and, and you take such a literal hermeneutic, that hermeneutic meaning how you interpret Scripture, that you actually miss the point of Scripture. This is kind of what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were Biblicists. The Pharisees, they read the Scripture night and day, but they missed the whole point. Jesus said, the whole Scripture points to me, and you keep missing me. And so as we read Scripture, here's the deal. We, we need at least three things. We need the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God, or the church of God. So when we read Scripture, we read Scripture with the illumination of the Spirit of God, right? So the Spirit has two primary works in, in regards to the way He partners with the Word. 
the Spirit of God first, he, he, the Spirit of God, he first inspires the Word, right? That's in the writing of Scripture, the apostles and the prophets. So the Spirit of God works first in inspiration, that's the writing of Scripture, but the Spirit of God still works in conjunction with the Word today through no longer inspiration, we're not adding new books to the Bible, but through illumination. So the same Spirit who inspired the writing of the Word, He works to illuminate the reading of the Word. And so we read the Word with spiritual eyes, the Holy Spirit giving us insight, but we also need the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the Church of God, the people of God. We read the Word with the witness of 2,000 years of church history. And we are fools to discount that. We're fools to write off 2,000 years of Christians studying the Bible. But that's what our generation does, right? Doesn't our generation think we're the smartest generation that's ever lived, right? Like everyone has been dumb until now, right? We're the first ones to find out that America is racist, right? We're the first ones to find out, you know, that America actually started in 1619, right? We're the first ones to, to, to figure out that, you know, that, that, that traditional, you know, views and roles between men and women is oppressive, right? We're the first ones to this, the first ones to that. Right? We're going to shut down the virus, as Joe Biden said. We're the first ones that like, we control the wind and seas and, and disease now. We're, we're gods. It's such an arrogant view. Such an arrogant view. We think that no prior generation has anything to teach us. Generations that fought wars and built economies. Not the boomers, but the greatest generation. No offense to the boomers, but the greatest generation. Right? So we have the greatest generation... Then we have the boomers. Now we have millennials and Gen Xers. and everything. It's not going so hot. It's not going very well. There's a lot of presumption. There's a lot of arrogance. And we think that all of a sudden we can see things correctly, that we get things right. No. No, we read the Bible along with this great cloud of witnesses. We're, we're running the race. The Bible says before a great cloud of witnesses. Now, those witnesses... That's generations of the church past. We're not praying to them, right? We're not Catholic. We're not praying to them. They're not saints. But we are reading the scripture and running the race that's set before us with their help. They're not equal in authority to the Bible, but Christian tradition does, in fact, matter. So there's Roman Catholicism, tradition and scripture, two equal streams. And then there's today's evangelicalism, which is, Scripture and tradition, we just throw it out. Light it on fire, have, have a bonfire, it's worth nothing. So Rome says tradition is equal to Scripture. Today's modern evangelical says tradition doesn't matter at all. Biblical Christianity says it, it's a little bit in between. Tradition matters. It's not on par with authority to Scripture, but it does in fact matter. There are generations that have come before us that, that really did some good theological work. The only reason we understand the Trinity is because of the church fathers that paved the way. The word Trinity is not the Bible. There's another example of Biblicism. If you're a true Biblicist, you don't believe in the Trinity. It's not in the Bible. I don't believe it. I only believe what the Bible says. Like, there, are, there are people who profess to be Christians like that. Why, why do we believe in the Trinity? Because of the Bible interpreted through tradition. Bible still supreme in its authority, but tradition being very, very helpful. So, Rome, grace plus sacraments, faith plus works, Christ plus saints, and Mary as co-redeemer, 
Scripture plus tradition. And lastly, the glory of God shared with the glory of men. Because if you insert man in all these other steps, then man must be deserving of some of the credit. You can't, you can't say that, that it is so incumbent upon man to work towards his own salvation and contribute towards his own redemption and then not give man some of the credit at the end of the day. You have to. If he does the work, he gets the credit. You know why we believe that God alone gets the glory? God gets the credit alone because God does the work alone. He gets all the glory because he does all the work. He did it all. All of it. We, we, we don't share in the glory because at the end of the day, we're not contributing to our own salvation. That doesn't mean that our obedience isn't important, but our obedience is not what merits the favor of God. It's Christ's obedience and our faith in His obedience. And you might say, well, right there. So it's Christ's obedience, but we're contributing with faith. Nope. Faith is a gift. But what about repentance? That's a gift too. Well, what about being born again? You have just as much say over your second birth, the new birth, the spiritual birth, as you did your first physical birth. How much is that? Zero. God does it all, so God gets all the glory. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. All that being said, bringing it back to our text, believe it or not, getting back there, bringing it back to our text, Bad doctrine, like Roman Catholicism, can stunt someone in their spiritual maturity. So the first group, three groups, the first group that John is addressing is little children. Typically, he means to use this phrase to talk about the whole church, everyone, in an affectionate way. You're all my spiritual children. In this case, he's talking about to new converts or people who are at the spiritual maturity level of a new convert, even though they've been walking with Christ, presumably, for 40 years because they've been stunted in their spiritual maturity by idolatry or by sin or by bad doctrine. And that's why I went on the Catholic rant. All right, here we go. We're all caught up. So he talks to children first. What does he say to little children? I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. First thing that you need to see in that, your sins are forgiven for, that is, to this end, for this reason, for this purpose, to achieve this goal. What is it? Your sins are forgiven for your good. No. Your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. God forgives sin, first and foremost, for His glory. God is for God. And that really kind of makes us feel left out sometimes. Right? Like a third leg or a fifth wheel. Right? Like, like God the Father and God the Son just have this eternal love relationship and we're kind of on the sidelines and just, it's kind of like he's just, we're just tools in the equation. He's just using us. The, the, the Father is giving us as a gift to His Son, as a bride, and the Son presents us pure and spotless back to the Father. And it's like, do you even love us at all? Or are you just handing us back and forth, you know, to show how much you love each other? That one. And it involves God's love for us. But, but make no mistake, this whole idea of the church, this whole idea of... of of those who've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone for all of human history, for thousands of years, for millennia, 
we are, in a very real sense, we are simply the gift that the Father is giving the Son and the gift that the Son gives back to the Father to express their incredible love for one another. And in that, they love us as well. We're wrapped up into that. We have union with that. But at the end of the day, it's not, first and foremost, about us. It's about Him. I write to you, little children, for your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. For His credit. His reputation. His glory. His fame. That it might be known throughout all the earth that God is the God who forgives iniquity. That's the first thing that we should see in verse 12. Our sins are forgiven for His name's sake. The next thing that we need to see is this. Little children, again, in this context, representing new converts, those who are spiritually immature because they're new to Christ or because they've been stunted in spiritual maturity. The first thing that someone who is new to Christ or still spiritually immature, the first thing that they need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they need to get down into the marrow of their bone is the forgiveness of sins. That the youngest child in the faith can still know. They may not understand all the workings of the Trinity, which, let's be frank, I don't understand, you don't understand. None of us get the Trinity, not really. <laughs> but a child, the youngest of children, a brand new convert, there's one thing that they can get, that their sins have been forgiven. And it's not just that they can grasp this, they must. What John is saying is that for those who are spiritually immature, for those who are new converts, the first thing you need to, to hold and to clench, white knuckle, never let it go, is the guarantee, the promise, the assurance that you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Now the next thing that he does, when, when he addresses little children again, later on in our text, is he says that you have known the Father. I write to you, Children, because you know the Father. That's the second half, the, the final portion of verse 13. Something we need to notice in the text is this. It's a very simple format, right? It's only, only three verses, right? 1 John chapter 2, 12, 13, and 14. And, and what, what we see is three different audiences, and we see John address each of these three audiences twice. So he says, children, fathers, young men. And then he just repeats it. He, he addresses them a second time. Children, fathers, young men. All right, so in the first address to children, that is, those who are spiritually immature, typically a new convert, he says, your sins are forgiven. The second time Paul addresses children, those new in the faith, he says, you know the Father. So there are at least two things from our text that a brand new convert must grasp. That is the forgiveness of sin, and they must know that because on the basis of the forgiveness of sin, the doctrine of adoption. It's not just justification, right? The forgiveness of sins. Reformers were all about justifications. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I couldn't even get past, that wasn't even a point in my sermon. And, and you guys just witnessed me spend 20 minutes, you know, talking about justification and pairing it up with Rome. Reformers like justification. We love it. Right? We love it. But here's the deal. Now, I've talked about this multiple times with my friend Stacy, and he's, he's, he's reminding me of this point, and he's right on. And the Puritans got this. Stacy didn't get it himself. He got it from John Owen and other guys, but, but he's right. Here's, here's the point. 
It's about communion with God. Justification is not the end. Justification is the means by which we have communion with the triune God. It's about fellowshipping with Him forever. It's about experiencing intimacy with God forever. And and one of the things on the way to that eternal communion is adoption. So if we have our ordo salutis, right? That's the order of salvation. We have justification somewhere over here. And then past justification, we have adoption. Now that doesn't mean there's years in a chronological timeline in between the time that you're forgiven of your sin and then adopted. All that happens in a moment. But, But we're not talking about chronological order so much as we're talking about the order of logic, if that makes sense. A logical order. And a logical order of salvation is this, that God justifies as a free gift by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the reformers, we just want to keep talking about that. But let's move on. He justifies and then he adopts. He adopts. Now to be technical, he, he justifies. There's conversion, there's faith, there's repentance. All that is happening in the realm of justification. But then there's adoption and then there's sanctification There's perseverance, that would be another step. And then there's glorification. That that we're glorified, our our, our body resurrected to spend eternity in communion with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But adoption is key. Adoption is key. Now, here's one thing that's important about adoption. I was adopted. My parents adopted me. So I've been adopted twice. Once by my parents here on earth and once by my Heavenly Father. Now, A lot of people these days think that everyone is a child of God. Have you ever heard that? We're all God's children. That kind of messes with adoption. Right? So so if, if, if my biological parents decided to keep me and they went down to the courthouse, let's say I'm a couple weeks old, and they said, we would like to adopt this baby. And they run a DNA test. Right? Guys... You must be as dumb as a stump. I don't know. I think we maybe should take the baby away from you. But you, you seem to not understand how this whole parenthood thing works because you don't need to adopt this child. He's yours. He's already yours. So in Ephesians, where we see the language of adoption, what does it imply? God can't adopt kids if they're already his. God's not adopting people if we start this life as all God's children. The, the very... The very existence of the doctrine of adoption necessitates another doctrine that we find in John chapter 8 where Jesus says to the religious rulers, Abraham's not your father. God's not your father. Your daddy is Satan. The devil is your father. You're a chip off the old block. You look just like the devil. His nature, he was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. And here you are doing the same two things. You're trying to bear false witness about me, a.k.a. lying. And you're trying to crucify me unjustly, a.k.a. murder. Right? Children bear a striking resemblance to their parents. So Jesus is saying, you look nothing like Abraham. You look nothing like God. You look a lot like Satan. That's your father. And the reality is that every single time a child is physically born into this world, they start off as a child, not of God, but of the devil. And the beauty of salvation, the beauty of the gospel, is that God adopts us. He ransoms us. He saves us from Satan and adopts us as his own children. He adopts us. And so the first two things that any child of God needs to recognize in the outset of the Christian life, 
spiritually mature, brand new convert, doesn't matter. You've been saved for 24 hours. Great. Know these two things. Your sins are forgiven. And God is your father. That's what he says. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his glory, for his name's sake. For your good, yes, but first and foremost, for his glory. And, into verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Not you know God. Everyone knows God to some extent. That's what Romans 1 is all about. That's natural revelation. The, the doctrine of natural revelation, the doctrine of natural law. Common grace. These doctrines, what Paul writes in Romans is he says this, you've been made in the image of God. You have a conscience that testifies that there is a God. And God can be clearly seen by, by what He has made. The creation itself testifies that there is a God in heaven who will judge both the quick and the dead. And there are at least two characteristics of God that can be plainly seen even by the unbeliever. Simply by virtue of creation itself testifying to the existence of God. Here are the two characteristics. His eternal power and divine nature. That's Romans 1. Which means any person, not any all persons. Any makes it sound like anyone's capable. No, no. Romans 1 says you are without, you, O oh man, are without an apologia. That is, without an argument, without an excuse. Right? What's the excuse that people want to use? Ignorance. Ignorance does not equal innocence. You know why? Because no one's actually ignorant. You don't have ignorance. You can't fall back on ignorance and try to argue your way from ignorance to innocence. You're not innocent because you're not ignorant. All people have seen the existence of God, if nothing else, by virtue of what He has made. Now, that doesn't mean they see every attribute of God. For that, we don't need just natural revelation. That's creation, what God has made. But we need special revelation, what God has written in His Word. Apart from special revelation, we can only know God in part, but you can still know God. So my point is this. According to Romans 1, every single human being who has ever lived knows God. So what John says in the second half of verse 13 to little children, those who are new to the faith, he doesn't say, you know God. Everyone knows God. But he says, you know the Father. That's the difference. And it makes all the difference in the world. He's no longer merely your God. He is now your Father. You've been adopted. Your sins have been forgiven, justification, and you've been adopted he is your father. The one who used to be the judge, the one whose condemnation you were under is no longer, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now therefore no more condemnation. The one who used to be your judge is now your beloved father. He hasn't just forgiven you. He's adopted you. He didn't just part, he's not just the judge and even the good judge, the gracious judge that you had your court hearing and then he slammed down the gavel and pardoned you of all crimes and then sent you home. No, he pardoned you of all crimes and then adopted you and brought you to his house and set you up at his table to dine with him, to eat with him, to fellowship with him. So little children, your sins are forgiven. The judge has pardoned you on the basis of Christ's work for Christ's glory, His namesake. And little children, He didn't just justify you. He brought you home with Him. He adopted you. You know not just God. You know 
the Father. Now, the second audience that he writes to is fathers. Not the Father, the Heavenly Father, but fathers on earth, spiritual fathers. So in the same way the phrase little children refers to those who are spiritually immature, spiritually new converts. Fathers, in our text, refers to those who are spiritually mature, those who have been walking with the Lord for a while and have not been stunted in their spiritual growth due to sin or idolatry or bad doctrine, but rather they have persevered, they have developed, they have grown, and they are spiritually mature, spiritual fathers. What does John say to them? Verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. The second time he addresses them, verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So he has the same address to fathers. For children, it's sins are forgiven and you know the father. Justification, adoption. For fathers, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. The word know in this context is, this, is a present future, a present progressive verb. It's, it's this continual ongoing. It means that you have known and you've continued to know and you still know. So to fathers, John says this, the mark of spiritual fathers is that they have known God and that they still know God. What many biblical scholars have said about this text is this, that those spiritual fathers are those who have known the Father, just like little children know the Father. That's what John says in the end of verse 13, little children, you know the Father. But the difference between spiritual fathers and spiritual children is that spiritual fathers know the Father, have known the Father, and still know the Father. And what that means, to kind of flesh that out, what that means is that they have known God as Father through all the trials, through all the challenges, through all the difficulties, and at the very end, they still know. That word know, it's this intimate knowing. They still intimately and affectionately know God as Father. There are many people, many people who profess Christ, but as life goes on, as troubles come, they stop knowing the Father. They stop. They would say, I knew the Father. I knew the Father. There was a time that I went to church. There was a time when we were a Christian family. I sent my kids to a Christian school. There was a time that I was really all about this whole Jesus thing. I knew the Father. But they know Him no longer. It's like what Jesus says in his parable, the four different types of soil. There's soil that's, that's like falling on the path. It's, it's, it's soil where the birds of the air come and snatch it up. Right? That's the enemies of the gospel. That's false teachers. That's false doctrine. But then there's also this top soil where right underneath, just a couple inches underneath, there, there is rock. Right? So the, the soil is only a couple inches of depth so the roots can't go down. And because the roots can't go down the stem and the branches go quickly up. But what happens is that when the sun rises, the crop begins to wither and die. The third soil is soil that it's deep, so it can have deep root, but the problem is there are other plants planted with it. Right? That's the problem we have in Texas. Right? They're called weeds. They're everywhere. And I used to think they were flowers, sunflowers. Turns out it's a weed. I, I, I liked sunflowers growing up, and now that I own a home and have a yard, I don't like them. I don't like them anymore. So anyways, the point is that you have weeds growing up, and it chokes. And now Jesus explained, and then there's the four soils, the good soil, that brings a crop, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. 
Now, Jesus explains the parable. He says that the, the, the soil where there are weeds that grow up with the good plant and choke it out, that those weeds represent the cares of this world. That's idolatry. It's the cares of this world. It's idolatry. It's sin. That you eventually, you just, you, you love money more than God, right? No man can serve two masters. Or, or you love whatever, comfort, pleasure, significance, ambition, all those different things. There, there's a million different idols. But you love these things and it chokes out your affection for Christ. But the other soil, that's, that's the weeds growing up and choking. The other soil, that thin soil, where, where, where the, the, the roots can't go down deep and so it springs up quickly, but then the sun comes out. The sun, Jesus says, it represents tribulation, trial, difficulty. There are some people who follow Jesus for years, seemingly. Right? They've seemingly followed Jesus for years. They've said the right things. They've gone to church. They put their money in the bucket. Right? They did family worship and catechism with their children at home. Right? They homeschooled their kids, pulled them out of the public schools because they heard Bodie Bauckham say so. Right? And all those good, and, which I agree with. But they, they did all these different things. And, and I'm not just talking about mediocre Christians. I'm talking about in the Reformed homeschooling, classical education, post-mill world. There are people, you hear stories of people that they're, they're, not, they're not following Jesus at all. After years, I'm talking decades, of not just showing up to church, but going above and beyond, having a track record, a rap sheet that would make the average evangelical look like a pagan. And yet after 20 years, where are they? It wasn't idolatry so much. It wasn't like, oh, and now I love money. You know, it wasn't just like a midlife crisis. It's like, I really love Jesus. And, you know, I paid thousands and thousands of dollars for my kids to go to a private school. I paid for two schools, taxes to the public school, and then I paid for this other school. But now what I really want more than Jesus or more than anything else is a sports car. And I'm just going to hang up my hat for Christian. No, it's, it's not so much that. It's usually not the weeds, the cares of this world that choke it out. It's the sun. It's the sun. It's tribulation. It's trial. It's difficulty. So they did all these things and then their wife got cancer. Right? They did all these things and then one of those kids that they invested all this time, all this love, all this affection, all this money got in a car wreck at 18. And the Bible said, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, and there's a first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live a long life on the earth. And this child was obedient to their parents, and the parent was faithful to train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and they still smacked dead at 18 on the highway. And the person's just done. Just forget it. It's the sun. It's trial. It burns them up. So what the Apostle John, underneath the inspiration of the Spirit, writes to these people, spiritual fathers, those who have been in the faith for a long time, it seems so simple, it doesn't seem that profound, but it is. He says, I write to you because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, spiritual fathers, because you know the Father. And what he means is this, you have known Him as children, 
Right? Because that's one of the things he writes to children. Your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. You've known him as spiritual children from spiritual infancy. From the moment of conversion, you have known not only the justification of God, but the adoption of God. You have known him as Father. And here we are 40, 50, 60 years later, and through all the sun burning down, all the trials, all the difficulties, you not only know him, but you have come to know him even deeper. You love him not less, but more. And through all these difficulties, it has refined your faith like gold. It has only made your affection and adoration and know, that knowledge, being that intimate, loving knowledge of the Father, deeper, not less. It's only made it stronger and more profound. You have come to know the Father, and here at the very end, you still know Him. You've never let go. And we know that you've never let go, ultimately because He's never let go of you. The last group is young men. Spiritual children, what's the first thing? The first two things you need to know as a spiritual child, you've been forgiven, justification, you've been adopted. God is your father. No longer the judge, but your father. At the end of this life, spiritual maturity, spiritual fathers, what do they know? They know how to make it through uh, trial and tribulation and to intimately love the Father in such a way that they never let go and where trials don't cause them to fall away like the sun that, that causes the plants to wither, but rather the, the, the trials cause them to actually be purified like a furnace where they're, they're, they're gold, all the dross and all the impurities are just burnt out. They're purified, they're refined. That's fathers. Young men is the missing link, if you will. It's Bigfoot, right? It's... it's, it's it's in between. So how do you go? Here's the big question, and we'll be done. The big question in our text is this. How do you go from spiritual children to spiritual fathers? Put another way, more simply, how do we go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity? The key is young men. Again, addressed twice. What does he say to young men? Let's read it. Verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So what, what makes the difference? What, what, what is the missing link that gets you from spiritual immaturity, little children, to spiritual maturity, fathers, overcoming the evil one? That's the ticket. Overcome the evil one. I write to you. Young men, because you have overcome the evil one. But here's the question, how? How do you overcome the evil one? Well, luckily, he addresses young men once more, and this time, at the very end of our text, he gives us a little bit of insight. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. You overcome the evil one, why? Because you're strong. And you're strong, why? Because the Word of God abides in you. And therefore... Because the word of God abides in you, you're strong. And because you're strong, therefore, you have overcome the evil one. And by overcoming the evil one, being resilient in the midst of idolatry and temptation and trial and tribulation and all these things, you have gone from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. You've done all this by overcoming the evil one. And you've overcome the evil one because you're strong. And you're strong because the word of God abides in you. So the final, final question is this. What does it mean for the Word of God to abide in us? Right? Because I think, I think it'd be really easy for a lot of pastors, including myself, to just end it right there and say, that's the ticket. You want to go from being a spiritual little child to being a spiritual father, spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity? Well, 
You've got to overcome the evil one. The way that you do it is the Word of God abiding in you. Love the Word. Let's pray. Right? That, I think that's typically, that's probably what I would have done a few years ago. This is what I've recognized in the church in America again and again and again. People don't, they don't know how. Right? So we, we make these pithy statements, we say these, but they don't know how. Or, 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 or they don't know practically, what does it look like? So the Word of God needs to abide in me so that I'm strong, so that I can overcome the evil one, so that I can go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity. But what does it look like, Pastor, for the Word of God to abide in me? What does the Word of God abiding in me look like? Psalm chapter 1. Let's look at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 says this, Blessed, got it a little bit memorized, Blessed is the man, I've got to find it. I can't turn and try to recite something at the same time. Here we go, all right. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, or the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Conversely, the ungodly, they're not so. They're, they're like chaff. They're, they're just gone. So the righteous are stable. They're like trees with deep roots by streams of water. But what does it look like? It says, he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the path of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Have you noticed there's a progression to sin? You start walking the wrong way, and then you're standing in the wrong way, and then you just go ahead and have a seat. <laughs> you just take off your hat, take off your coat, and stay a while. And then all of a sudden, where did things go wrong? It started with walking off the path, then standing off the path, and then just sitting down. The righteous, the blessed man, he's not so. He's not like that. His delight, he doesn't walk that direction. He doesn't stand in that area. He doesn't sit in that place. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the first thing that you've got to recognize. He meditates on God's law. That's what it goes on to say. He meditates on it day and night. But why? By gritting his teeth? Solo bootstrapia, pulling himself up by his own strength, by his own resolve. No, he meditates on God's law day and night because he delights in it. At the end of the day, that, that's, that's all we ever do. Everything you've ever done is because that's what you wanted to do in the moment. It's the power of your most, your most potent desire at any given moment. Why do we sin? Because in the moment, we want to. You, do you know that? You have never done anything in your entire life that you didn't want to do. You're not a victim. Now, that doesn't mean there's not real oppression in the world. That doesn't mean that bad things don't sometimes happen that are unjust. But at the end of the day, even when injustice is done, sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. Sinners tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. Which means at the end of the day, we always have a choice. Not always in what happens to us, but always we have a choice in how we respond. And how we choose to respond is a direct reflection of our desires. Anything we ever do is exactly what we wanted to do. So why does a man meditate on the law of God day and night? Because he delights in it. Because what he desires, what he loves, is God's law. It's God's law. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That man who meditates on the law of God day and night, he's like a tree. He's planted by rivers of water, which means 
even during dry seasons, right? There are seasons where there's no rain. No rain. Guess what? This tree's okay. Why? He's planted by streams of water. He's not dependent on seasons. He's not just de dependent on the rainy season and the dry season. Even during the dry season, he has a direct source. He's tapped in at the root. So when there's not rain falling on the branches, his roots are drinking deep into the stream. The stream is the word of God, right? Christians, right, there, there are seasons of life. That, that would be like circumstances where rain, no rain, rain, dry. But the Christian, here's the deal. We can't control the circumstances when it rains and when it's dry. But what we can control is where we're planted. And when we're planted by streams of water, even when the rain doesn't come, we still have life. And again, the stream of water is the word of God. And this kind of tree, what does he do? He brings forth fruit in its season. That's encouraging too. Even a healthy tree, the blessed man, the righteous man, still doesn't bring forth fruit every single day. There are still fruitful seasons, which imply there are seasons where there's not a lot of fruit. But the blessed man, the righteous man, who's planted by streams of water, just like there are seasons where it rains and seasons where it doesn't, there are seasons where we bear more fruit and seasons where it doesn't feel like we're bearing any fruit at all. But a blessed man, a righteous man, will bear fruit, some fruit, in season. And its leaf shall not wither. It's an evergreen because it's by the stream. It's tapped in. And, and what's the key to all this kind of fruit, all these results, these, these blessings? The key is he meditates on the law of God day and night. Why? Because he loves the law of God. And this is a cycle. He loves the law of God because he meditates on it. The more he meditates on the law of God, the more he sees the beauty, and it causes him to love it. And the more he loves it, the less it feels like a chore, the less it feels like obligation, this, this discipline of meditating. And so it's this beautiful cycle because I love the law of God, I meditate on it. And because I meditate on the law of God, I come to see more of its beauty that causes me to love it more. And as I love it more, I meditate on it more. So the last thing is this, what does it mean to meditate on the law of God? This is where Christians often fall short. Meditating on the law of God does not mean reading. Meditating on the law of God does not even mean memorizing. Now, both of those are necessary in order to meditate. But meditating on the law of God means thinking. And this, oh, how we have fallen short as the church in America when it comes to thinking. The church in America is as lousy as it is because it is not a thinking church. It doesn't think. We don't ask questions and we don't search for answers. We don't try to figure out the problem of suffering and evil in the world. And if somebody asks, hey, if, if God is good, if he's all loving and all powerful, why does he let bad things happen to good people? And nobody answers the question. We just, hey, have faith. And what we've done, what we mean by that, what we're implying is that we've divorced faith from reason. As though faith is something outside of logic. It's something outside of reason. So what we're actually saying is there are reasonable people in this world who think and then there are dum-dums called Christians who have faith. And then we wonder why we're not bearing fruit, why, why we're just tossed to and fro like, every, like, wind, uh, like waves by every wind and wave of doctrine. We, we wonder why we're not bearing fruit, why our leaves are withering, all these kinds of things. It's because we're not meditating. To meditate means to think. See, mantra meditation, pagan meditation, Eastern meditation is to empty the mind of all rational thought. Christian meditation, there is such a thing. Christian med meditation is precisely the opposite. In, in pagan meditation, you empty your mind of all thought. In Christian meditation, what we do is we feast our mind on substance, on substance. And the substance is the word of God. 
And what we're doing in meditation is we are thinking about the Word of God. We're thinking, what does that mean? And how is that applied? What would it look like to be righteous in this area? Um, okay, the, the Word of God says, thou shalt not steal. Okay, well, well, let's think about theft. It's not just going into the corner store and taking a candy bar. Um, is it theft? What, what about theft when it's a civil government? Can governments steal? Uh, does government produce anything? No. So does government have any money? No, it's all, always our money, right? And so if government gives all this money to these people over here, does that mean that they're actually being charitable? Or, or are they giving money to these people over here because they took it from these people over there? Isn't that theft? Oh, yeah, that's stealing. That's called socialism. That's communism. That's Marxism. I'm thinking. And we get it and we're like, oh, that's political. Oh, that's... No, no, that's what it means to meditate on the Word of God. It's to think thoughts about God's Word. We have a generation of Christians who read God's Word. We have a generation of Christians who memorize God's Word. But they don't think about God's Word. They don't know what it means, and they don't know how to apply. And that's why all these things are happening in our nation, and Christians, we're so late to the game. Now we're like, oh gosh, vaccine mandate. Man, we, we got to do something. We should have been doing something a year and a half ago when this thing first rolled out. But we didn't. What, 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 what did Christians do a year and a half ago when we had a chance to, to, to get ahead of the game, to resist tyranny? What did we do? We canceled church. That's what we did. And some Christians still haven't come back because we don't think. And we don't meditate on the law of God to think about it deeply because we don't delight in the law of God. We don't love God's law. We don't. We've come up with this, this idea, modern evangelicalism, that anything that talks about God's law is legalism, right? Just give me the gospel, pastor. Just give me the gospel. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. Yeah, God loves you. That's right. And he loves you freely. That's the gospel. It's free. You don't have to earn it. It's the free grace of God. He loves you. But you know what the Bible says? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So yes, God loves you and he loves you freely. But because he loved you freely, you should love him back. And what does it look like to love God? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey. What do we obey then? Well, Jesus said the greatest commandment and the second which is like it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Okay, how do I love God? And how do I love neighbor? Well, that's why the Ten Commandments are helpful. The first four Ten Commandments tell us how to love God. The Sabbath. Don't take his name in vain. No graven images, no idolatry, no other gods before him. It's two tables of the law. Love the Lord your God, the greatest commandment, first four Ten Commandments. And love your neighbor as yourself, the next six of the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, children obey your parents. So the law of God is alive and well. And, and here's the difference between legalism and just good Bible believing. Legalism says obey God's law so that he'll love you. The Bible says, obey God's law because you love Him, and you love Him because He first loved you. So you're not loving God through your obedience to merit His favor. You're loving God through your obedience as an act of gratitude because He has freely loved you in Christ. We must look to the law of God. We must not despise it as many Christians do. That's Pharisee doctrine, that's legalism. We must not despise it, but we must come to delight in the law of God. If we delight in it and love it, we'll actually read it. And we can't just read it, but we need to meditate upon it. Think about it, how to apply. How to apply. It's theology applied. It's all of, all of Christ for all of life. It's the conference that all of your leaders are at right now. I think your saying is really close. Christ is in, what, what? Christ in all of life for all the world. 
You guys looked at Doug Wilson. You got as close as you could without plagiarism, and you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. All right, that's it. Uh, let's go ahead and continue our service. What we're going to do now is we're going to worship the Lord through song. So would you go ahead and stand with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Be blessed.